Good afternoon and welcome to the 85th of the COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I talk about the inequalities of the COVID-19 economic disaster and possibilities for recovery with Fallon Samuels Edu. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and do please feel free to suggest yourself. I uh, just wanted to share some good news. Uh, got uh, Just got word that Robert J. Lifton is going to join me on COVID calls August 10th, so please do mark your calendar for that conversation with Robert J. Lifton. As of today, July 17th, 2020, there are 13,885,746 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 13,589,273 cases reported yesterday. Of those, 3,604,408 are in the United States. That's up from 3,499,771 yesterday. There are now a total of 138,649 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 137,420 yesterday, over 1,000 new deaths in the last day. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now today, a story of perseverance. Headline, she had a baby and bought her own business in the Bay Area. Then the coronavirus pandemic started. By line, Leonardo Castaneda, Mercury News. Erin Gomez's dream of owning her own auto shop finally came true when she purchased the Mountain View business where she'd been hired as a receptionist more than 16 years earlier. Not long after giving birth to her second child, she was signing the incorporation papers to take over and open up as Bavarium Auto Works. It turned out her timing couldn't have been worse. And then two weeks later, the stay-in-place order happened, Gomez said. Luckily, it's an essential business, so we were able to stay open. I can only imagine if I had bought a hair salon and then had to shut down two weeks later. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrown Gomez's new business and her growing family into chaos as they struggled to adapt to health regulations, shuttered schools, and the worst economy since the Great Recession. She joined thousands of Bay Area, California, small business owners who have been rocked by the pandemic, caught between the need to stay afloat and protecting themselves, their employees and their customers from the virus. It's unbelievable. You almost have to laugh because what else can I do, she said. Gomez didn't start out a car fanatic eager to own her own auto shop. When she first started at the Mountain View shop, she was just answering an ad in the Mercury News for a receptionist. The shop, previously called Carbon Auto Works, was owned by Steve Dynan, an internationally recognized BMW specialist and catered to European cars. 
people would call in and I would attempt to answer their question. And I literally have someone say on multiple occasions, can I talk to a man? She said, it's hard to be a woman in this industry and to gain people's respect because they can't imagine that I would ever know or want to know anything about cars. When she went on maternity leave uh, before the birth of her second child, Gomez and her husband, a shop foreman at a BMW dealership, decided to open their own business. She called the Carbon owners to say she wasn't coming back. They said, why don't you buy this one? Gomez said, within a month, we were proud owners. Although they're allowed to stay open, business has slowed at Gomez's shop, where she works with her husband and one other employee. Stay-home orders have idled the cars of those who still have a job, delaying the need for auto repairs and maintenance. Gomez said she's lucky to still have regulars coming in. Those are the customers who have known her since before she got married, before the birth of her son, who is now six years old, or her newborn daughter. And she has seen them through marriages, divorces, new jobs, and other major milestones. They call her trying to schedule maintenance checks or to ask her to install new tires, even though they don't need them. I'll go bankrupt before I tell somebody they need something that they don't, she said. While she waits for business to pick up, Gomez has been applying to every pandemic aid program she can find. Her application for a Paycheck Protection Program loan was denied because she was told she needed payroll from at least February 15th. A disaster loan from the Small Business Administration was first approved, then denied without explanation, she said. She did receive money from California's Workers' Compensation Fund for personal protective equipment for the shop, she said. She hasn't heard back on applications for grants and aid from the City of Mountain View or Facebook's Small Business Grants Fund. In the meantime, she's figured out a routine, answering customers' calls and emails while homeschooling her six-year-old, making sure he gets his exercise time in the morning. Now that it's summer, she makes sure he reads to his baby sister he goes into the shop with his dad a couple of times a week. I'm making it through a pandemic with a newborn and a new business, she said. It can only get better. It can't get worse. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation today. I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce my guest, a friend of mine, Alan Samuel Zadu, is the Jean Brainerd Bobel Professor of Historic Preservation and is affiliated with the University of New Orleans' Department of Planning and Urban Studies, as well as its Urban Entrepreneurship and Policy Institute. Her recent work appears in Preservation in the 21st Century, forthcoming volume, also Preservation and Social Inclusion, which came out this year, and Spatializing Politics, Essays on Power and Place, which appeared in 2016. She currently leads a COVID working group of urban policy and planning academics and practitioners that are exploring the pandemic's impact on the commercial anchors of majority-minority communities. Dr. Adu remains engaged in the practice of adaptive reuse through teaching and research of historic preservation at UNO participation in the Louisiana University's Resilient Architecture Collaborative. As founder of Studio RXP, she also advises the developers of public financing models, private investment practices, philanthropic aid programs, and entrepreneurship support for historically African-American communities and corridors. Valent, great to see you. Welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you, and thank you, Scott, for having me. 
I'd like to remind everybody you can get your questions in today. You can put them right into the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter if you want. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster, and sometimes people like to email them to me. Please do that if you want. My email is sgk23 at drexel.edu. So, uh, Fallon, I'd like to start the way I've been starting these discussions and asking you where you're calling in from and what is the COVID-19 situation there today? Well, I am calling in from New Orleans, um, the lakefront area specifically, and in particular, my living room, which is, uh, is going to be subject to cycling on and off of HVAC, so I apologize in advance. Um, <clears throat> but for me, COVID has involved... Uh, a lot of ups and downs. I am a transplant to New Orleans, but I married into a family that's from here, um, and of which married into a family, it's a Ghanaian family that married into a very long-standing family in New Orleans. And so the roots of my extended family run really deep here in the city. And that, um, what kind of where is exactly to the hot spots of COVID, <laughs> um, New Orleans East and, parts of South Louisiana that are outside of the city. And so this has been a, um, a very interesting period of anxiety. Uh, I also, we have a lot of first responders in the family. Someone works at the food pantry. Someone is a police officer. Uh, you know, these are, that means that there's just constant exposure uh, and that raises our sense of um, consciousness about how this virus spreads, but also um, keeps us informed, to be honest, about what's coming down the pike in terms of preparedness and, and recovery planning. Who does it fall to in the family to make those information connections? There's usually in a family one person who's got the text that reaches everyone. Is that how you communicate about possible exposures? And Oh, it's you, of course. It's you. Um, You're the master organizer. <laughs> I so because you know I'm the one who subscribes to all I, I have the the family wide um, email <laughs> that subscribes to all of the um, the news feeds and I'm the one on social media <laughs> that subscribes to kind of Nola Ready which is the city's own kind of alert system and do my best to inform um, everybody from when there's a water shut off. Um, in another part of the city that's affecting a member of our family, I'm texting those elderly members of the family to kind of prepare for that. So it's, yeah, it can be a lot, but at the same time, it's what makes me feel connected to people at a time in which we might otherwise feel very isolated. Can you talk to me a little bit about the social protest situation there in the wake of the George Floyd murder, how you've been involved, maybe things on campus or with students or more generally in New Orleans that you've been engaged with? Well, I'd say that this has been, um, being here in New Orleans on the lakefront side of the city makes me geographically separated from areas of the city where marches and protests ordinarily take place. And so, um, and I think it's, that distance is also this, the campus of the University of New Orleans is also on the lake side of the city. And so it's, I think it's distanced, distanced the um, student community and the faculty and administrators from that um, 
from those protests, the fact that they also were most often at night, there were some dates like in the evening time, um, which is when the university has their classes in many cases. So um, University of New Orleans is a commuter campus and a lot of the working students take classes in the evenings. And so I think that's, it's not that the students aren't aware um, of protests and aren't participating in activism in a variety of ways, but that the campus community, I don't think I'd say is a part of that movement. Um, but that's purely from my perspective. I'm sure that there are other perspectives that faculty at other parts of the university have. Uh, I have been a, um, a part of a collaborative of faculty from the University of New Orleans and Tulane who were engaged in creating public programming um, related to this event, but that was more of an extension of pre-COVID, pre-George Floyd uh, programming. So I think that there's a, there are quiet networks. Um, and compared to other places that I've lived, because New Orleans is such a familial city, so many people are related to each other. There's jokes about, you know, you need to get people like <laughs> a family tree before you start to date them. Uh, right, right. And that means that people connect, not necessarily through hashtags and social media, but through group, private group means. And there's a lot of, you know, interpersonal communication by which things are organized. And you may not be a part of that. But that doesn't mean that things aren't happening. So you are a historian, a planner, a disaster expert. You wear many hats professionally. What I wanted to, there's a lot of things for us to talk about today. I want to start with your work right now on the economic impact of COVID-19, as you see it there in, in New Orleans or other places that you're paying attention to. We get a lot of numbers with this pandemic, case rates, death rates, um, you know, growth curves, and then a lot of economic numbers. What kind of data points are you paying attention to Sketch it out as you see the problems, and then let's talk a little bit about the specific work you're doing. So I'd say that I um, am kind of tracking what's happening two ways. Um, there's One is that there are a number of teams of social scientists working with public health professionals um, to, one, identify kind of COVID hotspots and then focus their social scientific you know, research on those places. And, um, and so there's a team of individuals um, connected to NCRS, which is a community reinvestment um, organization. And, you know, that's a cross-institutional team of individuals that I should probably specifically shout out. Um, and there, I would say that's an example of uh, one of the resources. That's Dr. Sterling Bone at um, Utah State, Dr. Glenn Christensen and Brigham Young, and uh, Dr. Jerome Williams at uh, Rutgers University. And I mean, that's an example. They were recently profiled in New York Times, so it'll be easy to find uh, their research. But um, they're bringing that kind of really robust social science um, data gathering, particularly around the the story that you that you shared access, differential access to these recovery aid programs, um, specifically PPP, payroll protection, and the EIDL, the Economic Injury Disaster Loan. Um, then there's 
I think a completely different perspective that I appreciate um, people who do business development and business assistance, um, you know, that's their bread and butter. And they work in that capacity for CDCs or redevelopment authorities or any number of bodies, entrepreneurship support organizations like accelerators and incubators. They have pre-existing relationships with business owners that, and that trust that they've built affords a, a conversation about what's going on with businesses, which, you know, you, you can drive down a street and it may appear that a business is doing fine, but, you know, peel back the curtain and really they're leveraging their own, their, their personal assets to keep the business afloat. And the people that they feel comfortable sharing that with because are people that they feel could help them get through this moment. Mm-hmm. And, and so I have relationships here with people, um, at the Propeller, which is the incubator, uh, one of several incubators here in the city, and a couple of the other types of accelerator um, bodies. And that's one way of kind of understanding more anecdotally, um, but from a kind of descriptive, qualitative way, how our business is faring. The upshot is that uh, large businesses and I, I say large businesses, large businesses in terms of their revenue generation, not necessarily in terms of how many employees they have, have been, they have pre-existing banking relationships. And, um, and so they're much able to, their ability to get capital through PPP was facilitated by these banking institutions. And they had more confidence that they would get it. So they invested more resources in getting that and getting the application together and the, the documentation that's required. But those who have a bank account, but you know, it's not like a, a business relationship, which they use that bank for other types of, you know, major transactions like mergers and acquisitions or things of that nature. They, you know, it's, they use their bank account, like a personal, you know, any individual might use a bank account. Um, they deposit funds and they withdraw funds. And that doesn't establish a relationship with those with that financial institution on which you can have confidence that the amount of time and effort that you're putting into pulling documentation that you might not have ready at hand is going to pay off. And for those businesses, successful businesses, like businesses that have won festi- food festival competitions here, which we love in New mm-hmm. Orleans, they are the ones that... Um, have not gotten those funds, and some of them didn't even apply. They said, you know what, we'll just rely upon our, our cultural network, our community networks to make it through. Uh, people will continue to buy this food. We can pivot, do more catering than, and food delivery than counter service and make it, and make it through. So um, I think that that is really the, the ways in which there's a middle ground of kind of six, otherwise successful businesses that are we see still surviving. They have limited hours. Um, I've kind of been driving along corridors of the city mm-hmm. that I do research on, taking not necessarily doing the Campanella quality, uh, you know, mapping of foot traffic mm-hmm. and um, and doors open, but trying to have some sense of, of how these commercial corridors are faring. And uh, it's more businesses are open than one thinks. The hair salons and the barbershops are back. Um, mm-hmm. and, and beyond that, um, I see a lot of other stores that it's they're in some kind of limbo. It's unclear. But downtown, interestingly enough, where there's more of a um, 
less businesses owned by people of color, I see much more for lease signs. So that's an interesting anecdotal point that you know I have not yet had any time to look into, but it's something worth considering. Let me just um, dive in a little bit further on some of this with you for people who may not be as familiar with some of the um, kinds of questions you ask in your research. So when you talk about CDCs, community development corporations, um, are they tapped into different kinds of funding than like payroll protection? Like it, it's, it's a little hard for me to understand if you're a small business owner, the what must be a kind of confusing array of options for relief, but the CDCs are right there. They're members of these, right? I mean, these are local community organizations, or is that not right? <laughs> yes and no. So a lot of CDCs are, um, they produce, you know, the built environment. And so they need capital financing from the financial institutions to do so. And so they have some pre-existing relationship with a bank of, um, either like a community bank or community development financial institution. And that does afford them a pre-existing relationship, but that doesn't mean that those banks are the CBA, the Small Business Administration preferred lenders for these loans, mm. which is a whole other complicating factor to these aid programs. Um, and the same, <clears throat> excuse me. And so that that's, that's one issue. Um, the loans kind of went, there's a pecking order in terms of the lenders. As for um, whether those CDCs could be a resource for small business, small businesses, maybe kind of an intermediary that acquires funds and redistributes them, the aid programs weren't designed for that. Um, there are, these federal ones weren't, but there are other aid programs um, at the state level that are designed specifically for that. And so, you know, I know, you know, I've been looking at the Baltimore Development Corporation, for instance, um, the in Minneapolis, the way that they're distributing funds is through the CDCs and other kind of community-based institutions that have exactly as you referred to, like existing relationships with members of their community, commercial and otherwise, nonprofits and such. And but they've had to set up boards and committees of people who will distribute these funds. And so the vetting of who's responsible for allocating the funds, that mechanism for doing so, that's not the bread and butter of what CDCs do. If anything, that's what foundations right. do. And so I think the, you know, a large part of my research is looking at the role that foundations play um, post-disaster and mm -hmm. they have stepped up to some degree um, and offering relief grant in you know, grant format to a variety of, uh, you know, kind of vulnerable populations, gig workers being a big one, um, particularly here in New Orleans, where this tourist economy very much relies upon that type of um, workforce. Same thing with our small business, you know, our NOLA BA, our Business Alliance, their grants and and relief has gone more to the workforce um, and it's been distributed in partnership with the foundation, community foundation here. So they're relying upon that existing expertise and infrastructure on the philanthropic side to do that, as opposed to these nonprofit CDCs that are a little bit more on the ground um, to 
to perform that role. remind people that uh, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Fallon Samuels Zadu. Get your questions in to YouTube Live in the chat or put them up on Twitter. So for New Orleans, in terms of you know, disaster impacts on business, small business, um, we've got Hurricane Katrina. I mean, we can make a very long list, but let's take a recent list. Hurricane Katrina and then 2008 and now the pandemic. Are you able to see lessons learned and applied right now to support small business, things that had, were learned in the Katrina recovery or in the 2008-2009 recovery. I'm, I want to know about that, and I specifically want to know about the inequalities that you may be seeing there, patterns of inequality that maybe should have been known and corrected after Katrina but are still lingering or Anything related to that? Because, of course, I'm always interested in how we learn or don't learn from disaster. What do you see across that stretch of time? Well, you know, most people know about the impacts of Katrina on the city and its, you know, inequitable and disproportionate impact and inequities in the uh, response. I think it's also worthwhile noting that it, there was much more of a kind of like one, two, three punch of Katrina, Rita, the financial crisis in a span of three years, and then a tornado of more recently, which hit the parts of the city that were also hardest hit by the by the flooding, um, just by you know uh, coincidence. And so there are multiple disasters that I think you know could have been that we could have learned from, and each of those was declared a match. Uh, uh, you know, a major disaster, and so that which triggered a certain kinds of state and federal response in terms of funding and administrative oversight, um, and specifically reallocation of community development block grants for disaster recovery. And mm. one of the things that I think is an, a nut that apparently seems uncrackable uh, is the the financing of recipients of those grants. And so community development block grants, um, like most other government funding, is on a reimbursement basis. And if you don't have the money up front, you can't really get the reimbursement for expenses that you've already paid for. Um, and so uh. this particular, this problem plagues uh, CDCs, and, and that problem has been addressed by foundations stepping in and providing upstart capital, upfront capital, I mean, or um, providing collateral for a, a bank, for a loan, a bank loan, and the bank providing the upfront uh, capital. But, you know, when it's not a CDC with that level of kind of institutional administration, you have, you know, it opens up a lot of risk. And so um, in that context, people of color get shafted for lack of a better way of putting it. You know, the, the system tends to revert back to known quantities, um, people who are uh, connected to 
sources of capital outside of the city, outside of the state, really. And so charter school networks that are national networks like KIPP and so forth, they're back up and running with an entire, you know, with the planning that needs to happen for COVID, for instance. And then you have um, community-based charter schools, you know, so it's the same structure, but the board is community members. They're in receivership with the school with the school board. So, you know, that disparity um, is, can be really, really stark. I, I think that we additionally, there's a conversation that happens amongst, you know, people who are connected to all these different institutions and programs and aid, and we make assumptions about what people already know about how to utilize these resources. And that level of knowledge isn't really ready at hand for the, those, those mutual aid networks that step up in these moments. And who's bringing those, individu those individuals and in, in informal networks together and providing them with those resources is a big question mark. And I think as much as we know about mutual aid now in disaster research, I, there should be more, um, more of that research should be integrated into economic planning, economic development organizations responsible for this kind of immediate recovery effort, um, such that they're not left out. And then we say, oh, we forgot, you know, to inform you all of this program. And then by that point in time, the bucket of money is gone. You know, it's, it's, it's done. I've had some really interesting conversations about mutual aid at an early COVID call with Robert Soden, and we talked about it. Can you just, you know, for people who are not as familiar, talk a little bit about when you talk about mutual aid and, and economic um, recovery, what kinds of organizations are these even down to talk to us a little bit about ones that you're aware of that are working right now? So I'm for sure not one who is in the mix of all of these organizations here in the city of New Orleans. Um, but within the communities that I do work with, um, one being the Pontchartrain Park um, neighborhood, which just got its, its historic district status, federally approved, so it's official. And that the road to that designation um, really immersed me in the community organizing of this this very multi-generational community. Um, lots of luminaries are from this, this neighborhood, Mark Morial and, and others. And so as much as they have these celebrity and, and public figures connected to their neighborhood, it's still a neighborhood of you know, African-Americans um, who are kind of moderately income, many of fixed income now because of their age. And the the ways in which they have repaired their housing stock is not a matter of them, you know, organizing to get the designation so they can get the tax credits that afford them to hire the developers to do that. No, none of that has happened. You know, how they repair this, the, their housing stock is by really lending a hand, you know, physically to making um, changes to older people's properties so that they don't lose their properties to um, and kind of to nuisance complaints and such. Um, and 
those types of actions, small things, like if a lot, you know, they had to demolish the structure, but they still own the land, you know, somebody comes and mows that property so that it doesn't get an, a, um, a citation. Those types of actions, mm -hmm. they, they accumulate and it kind of creates this thick um, network of actors who have different roles to play, right? So this isn't a flat network where everybody is kind of collaboratively convening to solve problems. People have certain roles that they play in it. And as a result, they actually, the, the neighbor association had to create a second, you know, nonprofit entity, um, another 5013C to really ensure that that network was protected and, and preserved separate from all the other activity and programming that they do. And so, um, and that they could fund what that network does separately from the other things. So those types of networks that pre-exist any, um, I mean, they're an out, this is an outgrowth of Katrina, but it's not, um, mm -hmm. no, it, it's not specific to any one disaster. It's much more dedicated to the chronic issues of disinvestment and, and, you know, and a population that's aging in many respects without the resources to handle that. And, but it does kick in to address really acute challenges, um, specifically this pandemic. Yeah, I, that, thank you for making that, that point because I think it's sometimes lost in this. I guess that's a question I have for you to follow up. I mean, um, in lower income neighborhoods, um, that may still have very strong social ties in, in New Orleans or any city. Um, how much does the COVID-19 pandemic look different from any other day? What are the actual economic differences that, that you're seeing? Because I've, you know, in Philadelphia, for example, I mean, there are communities that, obviously, I think the death rate is acute in some instances, or was um, in some instances. Thankfully, in Philadelphia, it's gone down. But I think in lots of other ways, look at unemployment, for example, um, the differences aren't as stark as you might think. And so what gets called a disaster by the media in lots of communities, I don't want to say it's everyday life because it's obviously different, but it, that differential isn't as great as a lot of people want to think that it is. And I would say that that is, um, there's two different kind of cases. There's the low income case, and I think rightfully is getting the most attention right now because um, they have the, you know, low income communities have the fewest resources and, and connections to really um, redress the acute that's overlaid on top of the chronic, right? Um, and there are communities that, that we visited um, together in, in South Louisiana, where there's the kind of the, the constant threat to their ability to breathe uh, because of the oil and gas industry. And then layer on top of that, the, you know, law enforcement criminal justice system. And then you lay on top of that, this particular pandemic. And, you know, it's a hot spot of all of three of those things. Um, and that puts people in a crisis survival mode that really can lead to an absence of planning. And which for me as a planner is, is really problematic because it assumes that there aren't already plans to be implemented. Um, 
because we think that we've got to reinvent the wheel to, for the specific, you know, unique, it's called a novel coronavirus, right? But there are so many aspects of it that are not novel. And, um, and people have been working on addressing any number of consequences of, you know, inequities in health for, and the physical and social determinants of health for some time now. And these things can just be deployed in this moment and, and funded and capacity built around them as opposed to us having to kind of convene a task force to study the problem and invent you know, a set of recommendations to be pursued. Um, it's really, but to be, you know, the leaders at the table have to be in conversation um, with those individuals who are knowledgeable of those previous plans. And sometimes it's those leaders themselves kind of in a willful ignorance. And, and, but other times they're just, they really don't know. And um, they don't know who they should be talking to. And that's, um, and that's a, that's a chronic problem in and of itself because they're not connected to the communities that are most vulnerable and most affected. And, and so that's something that could change. I would hope to see change before, you know, we're hit with something else. Um, but mm -hmm. that's, I would say, is on the kind of lowest income, most affected you know, communities, that's something I see happening. But then there's the other end of the spectrum. And, you know, I, I do a lot of work in Martha's Vineyard where, you know, people are like, oh, Martha's Vineyard, they can't possibly have problems, you know? Um, but we talk about during these moments of economic and health crisis, um, the, the loss of black lives, but we also um, often talk about the loss of black wealth and how that wealth is generated is often through property um, and being able to capitalize on that, on what is for many a rare asset, um, land ownership and property ownership. And there are being able to share that wealth in a number of ways, right? Through philanthropy, um, through, you know, that's like program specific, but also philanthropy that's just like supporting the churches, which people sometimes don't think of as philanthropy, but you know, paying, fully paying your tithes and offerings, you know, is, is what can sustain a church that provides food, let's say, in a community. And, and so that, that ripple effect can be really real. Um, and what I find, there's a community called the Cottagers. Actually, it's in their, their own um, nonprofit, in fact, um, in Martha's Vineyard, um, of 100 black women who own property. That, and they rent them on a kind of short-term rental basis. Um, and way before there was Airbnb and Verbo and all of these platforms, there was timeshares. Mm -hmm. People remember those. And um, how many, particularly African-Americans, vacationed. And, and then before that, there was, you know, a kind of word of mouth network by which you would have borders, quote unquote. Um, and hmm. that, that long history of hosting has really afforded a segment of the nation's African-American population to generate wealth, not all of which is shared, you know, to be honest, but um, a portion of which has largely been redistributed into a variety of, you know, different contexts, whether it's supporting hospitals or churches 
or art, youth education and any number of other affairs. And so all of those other as things you, are as written. You as you discuss that, and it, it begins to tap in there to your deep historical knowledge here, um, I wish I, I wish I knew a lot more. Um, but you know, black savings and loans, uh, black-owned funeral parlors, you know, um, economic instruments that held communities together because of Jim Crow and because of de jure and de facto segregation, which now in in theory, and you were talking a little bit earlier about some of the problems of, of the banks and, you know, the problem of getting capital in a moment like this. Um, it raises, again, this sort of, I guess, age-old problem in urban history about the, the moving target of integration and the ability of African Americans to rely on, in theory, what should be more colorblind instruments of help Planning should be planning for everybody. Economic growth should be economic growth for everybody. But in the story you just told, you talked about the reality of mutual aid and gave a really provocative example that's still very much connected with the persistence of African-American support networks. You're seeing that tension right now again in, in New Orleans. And a lot of it has to do with trust, I guess, but it's so rooted in a deeper history that I sometimes worry gets obscured or passed over. The question of integration or, or you know, uh, staying in one's enclave, that question. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that this is an age-old question that will remain, as particularly as long as there are threats, not just these kind of pandemic threats, but, um, you know, the example I gave of Pontchartrain Park and, and that mutual aid, a lot of what keeps it active is the pressure from the kind of local state that regulates the built environment. And it regulates the built environment in a very kind of race neutral way, um, which I will say, you know, is acknowledged by many people, public officials, um, but there's kind of a throwing up one's hands at that particular problem. But it has really adverse effects on, you know, low to moderate income households, but um, particularly people of color whose housing stock was never built to last um, and whose land was built, you know, was selected to flood, right? So the, the issues that one might be able, to, might have in another neighborhood, you may not have it as frequently as they do. It may not be as costly as it is for these property owners. And the instruments of regulation are not designed for that, that differentiation and disparity. And so, um, you know, that's, those are the police powers of the local state, right? Of, and those powers will continue to create a need for mutual aid. Um, whether or not those, the members of that network are low income or high wealth, you know, and, and I must note that, you know, a lot of those properties of African-Americans in Martha's Vineyard are in an unincorporated area. And what we know from, as urban historians and planning historians is that that has often that has often had positive and negative um, results. It's positive because it's what it's allowed people to remain outside of the jurisdiction of the local state and um, not to be subject to their 
regulatory frameworks, but it's also excluded um, black communities from powers of the state that might improve their well-being, right? And so whether that's hazard planning or um, preservation planning. It's, uh, thank you for, for sketching out sort of that historical detail. And it's, it's a way of understanding, I guess, structural racism that still we need to just know a lot more about and constantly be talking about. I want to connect that to um, talk about emergency management a little bit. Um, I know FEMA has got its detractors in Louisiana, a uh, long history there. But I am curious, did the state, um, was the state declared, a, I think every state was declared a major uh, disaster, right? Are you seeing um, small business uh, administration, are you seeing FEMA officials there on the ground, maybe in communities where they've built up a little trust since Katrina? I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't want to wade into... Too deep of waters here. I get myself in trouble, but I'm always fascinated about this interplay. And this is a FEMA is still nominally very much engaged in this disaster. Yes. And I don't know if I would say that it's like boots on the ground. Um, I know that there, I've been on several calls with people at the you know state level, their, their office of community development or their coastal authority, um, you know, effectively entities that have that are now, because of that designation, kind of authorized to act um, in ways that they might not otherwise. There's a, a gazillion task force uh, forces. It's there is certainly an organizing going on um, amongst federal authorities from FEMA and SBA and the um, members of the state bodies that. Not just those that like ordinarily deal with health, but to their credit, and I think this is definitely to the governor's credit, he really has a number of different task force that are engaging with COVID impacts that where even if like health, public health isn't their bread and butter. Um, that said, um, I would not, I would not say that FEMA is in, is building on any kind of pre-existing relationship that it built with communities because partly I don't think that they built relationships with communities when they were they were here. Um, not to mention that the community that, you know, of people that they might have engaged with in 2005, 2006 is not the same community of 2020. Um, so that, you know, these, these living bodies um, here, of communities, in the city, in rural parts of the of the state, uh, I don't think that there is something that can be plugged into when it comes to federal authorities wanting to kind of open up their purse strings and 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 provide you know assistance. But there is at the state level a really robust infrastructure of doing that, of engaging communities, and so I I do know that that's the streams that that are being um, pursued at this time. But there's, it's a very, it's a, when I say robust infrastructure, I mean, Louisiana has got a, people like, I think outside of the state, and I certainly might put myself in this bucket, you know, coming from the Northeast, would not have known how many people in this state, it's their day job to be looking at all things, hazards, disaster, 
climate change. It's, it's actually quite um, amazing and inspiring. At the same time, it creates this really like complex network of individuals and institutions, hmm. public and private, that are working on these issues. And you know, you reach out to one person to talk about one thing, and they're like, "Oh, I need to bring on like these three other entities onto this one call." Um, and so that's the I'd hmm. say slows the action, the direct action part of this down. And so which leaves then this vacuum in which local actors become, and I don't mean just, you know, these mutual aid networks. I mean, you know, a, the community foundations, the local redevelopment authority, the business alliances, like they become really the first responders from my perspective. Hmm. And that's amazing. And it's been, you explained that to me when I was visiting in, in, Louisiana, you, you ask a question about flooding or about Katrina, um, you, anybody on the street nearly, of course, is going to have an experience to share. And half of them are professionals, as you said, who are probably working in that area in one way or another. There's just a lot of expertise around, um, yeah. which should be a good thing, right? But you're describing a sort of a, a crowded field sometimes, I mean, particularly when there's not an unlimited amount of money out there to facilitate good planning. Um, I want to just stick with that for a second because you're a planner, but you're an educator and you have students at this time who are once again, living through history in Louisiana. What's on their mind? What are you learning from them? What are they learning from you right now? I'm really excited to hear from you as a teacher right now. Well, um, so I'm not teaching in the summer session. Uh, but of course, I, I had students in the spring um, and learning planning history and theory, uh, which really kind of punched up the, the whole history of planning around pandemics in the past. Um, yeah. One of the students was like, well, I'm really glad I did those readings um, <laughs> before, because <laughs> right. that was earlier in the semester uh, before we kind of broke uh, into kind of online only. But the students I teach in the Masters of Urban Planning, Urban Regional Planning Program are um, in many cases, in most cases, in fact, are working full time in, but the, in a number of different sectors. So I had two teachers, um, K through 12, um, and, and they're kind of very frontline experience um, they were able to share with members of the class um, and give them a give the rest of the class, I think, a sense of how visceral this threat at the time was. That you know, when it was still at a distance, you know, Louisiana wasn't a hot spot. You know, we we really, um, despite what the you know news would say, like. It didn't feel like a hot spot until it was. So, uh, so making that real for students because they, as teachers, were already kind of put on notice was something that changed the dynamic. I think of our class. Um, I think the same goes for. So that was both the planning history and theory class and my in the urban studies class I was teaching. I had teachers in both classes. Um, and the other dimension of this is that a good portion of our 
students work in public administration in some format. So like they do permitting or, um, and they're pursuing a master's because they kind of want to move out of that space into something else. And um, so they're public officials in some, you know, way. And that put them on edge because they had, they felt that they had a lot of responsibility in this moment to be really informed about how um, they like just like wanted, they were just like sponges, like tell me all that I need to know, right? What do you know? And so it created a very different relationship between the students and I, and that um, they much more so like, I sit on commissions and committees for public authorities and so forth. And it was a bunch of, it's more akin to that where, you know, somebody, from the city planning department calls you up and says like, hey, like, what do you know about X? And can I, you know, get on a call with you for an hour? There was that kind of hmm. response from students who were seeking that depth of understanding of what they were facing. Um, so I think, granted, like I have, they're not necessarily older in age than other, you know, um, graduate programs, but they they had a very kind of mature as I would say, um, approach to the threats. And mm-hmm. and there was a lot of fear um, about what was to come. So that was, I mean, but that was like the heart of the, the spring. And now that we're back in it, you know, I don't have as much um, contact with those students. I've been now kind of in contact with the students for the fall and, um, this summer has been more communication with students who graduated who now hold positions where they're not only dealing with, you know, crafting something related to COVID, but also related to systemic racism in their organizations and in the, the, the context in which they're practicing. And so I've gotten a lot of emails from students looking for um, guidance on you know, everything from like, what should I be doing to, you know, is, should I really be the person, you know, in this role of within my organization? You know, I just got here and I'm the only black person that they've ever hired and they really don't, you know, there's those kinds of questions. And, and so all of that together, I think is really, um, can be overwhelming, and which is why I say I'm impressed by the, the degree to which students have tried to, at least in email <laughs> and in Zoom conversations, parse these these things out and um, and try to kind of work through them, which is really keeps me inspired. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that, and and just to underline a couple of important things that I heard there. One is that you know a great educator of urbanism is kind of on call for students who are literally in a dynamic urban space. That's I know true. that you're, that's your, I know that's your approach to pedagogy and I respect that a great deal. But you also said something there at the end too about people wanting your advice or to share with you about how they find themselves in a difficult position because they may be in a mostly white department in, in the municipality. And as a black woman in city planning, I wonder, you have a unique perspective to share with them on that. I know you you often have found yourselves in a, yourself in a similar kind of situation. Uh, 
explaining structural racism to a room full of planning historians who could be all white, who have probably written books on the subject, but have a different perspective from you. I Thank you for sharing that connection point. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit more about it. Well, I can say that I have been a part of either drafting or responding to a letter drafted um, by an organization, at least, you know, at least a half a dozen um, in the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. And and so um, <laughs> there's like real time, there's another one <laughs> being worked on. Um, I, I would say that the public meet, like social media alone will tell you, you know, we're exhausted. <laughs> but um, by not, I mean, it's not just like the time and effort that goes into doing all of this, right? There's a lot of organizing and mobilizing and so forth that's um, that's involved in crafting a a letter that with as wide a scope as systemic racism, um, even in one organization or let alone a you know a field or profession, and um, so you know whether it's planning. Um, historic preservation. These are, you know, these two core fields of mine and, um, you know, the letter drafting, letter response work has been, uh, I think it's the exhausting part comes in where you feel like you're really, you're going back to square one when you've already moved on to you know, step five, like we've had conversations about one through five in other contexts. People have published on that. People have done that work already and being asked to kind of redo that work um, does two things. One, it diminishes the value of the work that's already been done and that's sometimes readily accessible. Um, and it it presents almost as a kind of false, um, imperative that we need to redo this work because somehow, you know, mm. the death of this man is different than the so many others who came before him that prompted that type of work. You know, I think about all of the um, work within design schools after um, Ferguson uprisings and so much was generated and so many people, I mean, and it wasn't, this wasn't pre YouTube or, pre-digital archiving, so much of that, those resources are still out there and available digitally even. And um, and so when it says, oh, I have no idea how, how to even start thinking about this problem. And I'm like, well, your own school, your own institution hosted people to talk about that very thing, you know, four years ago. Um, and so that's the, it's those types of things that are, that are the exhausting part of it. Um, when you know, Google exists. Um, your own institutional archives exist, and and it's when those ready at hand resources aren't being utilized to do that early work of coming then to yeah. say, hey, can we work on this? Like I, you know, I listened to so and so speak about this, and this idea. I'm really, I really think this could work in our organization. And could you help us in crafting how that looks? That's an actual valid ask, and um, right. and one that I think people are, I know that myself, 
am invested in, in being a part of. I mean, we would also like to be compensated in some way for that, whether that's credit or financially otherwise. But that work is the kind of work that brings value, not just to the organization, but to us. And I think that um, there's so many ways in which we can be partners in that if we can get everybody just doing some work before that conversation happens. You know, this, I'm learning so much from you today. Uh, and just a distinction you just made, which I think is a really important one, the, the open-handedness that you can take to explaining something you know and have explained many times. If you're explaining it to students, young people, or people who are asking the question in good faith for the first time, maybe the second time, that's, that's one thing. But when it's an institution like an institution of higher learning, for example, or a city water department or uh, some kind of deep-pocketed institution that asks to be re-explained structural racism yet again, the word you used was exhausting. And, and, and that's a word that I'm hearing a lot in that in that context. What can urban history and urban planning be doing as fields right now to bring that exhaustion down and to have those institutions learn those lessons once and for all? Institutions of higher education don't need to have this explained to them again, particularly if they're urban. We don't need task forces. We need hiring committees. I don't, I don't know, you know how much more of this self-study we need. Well, we need hiring committees with the resources that actually hire the people that result from the hiring committee's work. Uh, Fair enough. Uh, that, that too. Um, so one of the things that I, you know, I can't, can imagine how it's happening this time and not other times, but um, there are so many resources being collated and distributed by planning organizations, um, urbanist organizations, whether it is around um, race and space, syllabi, but not just, you know, here's a bunch of readings. It's everything from films and podcasts. I mean, it's a very multimedia-oriented um, approach that's being taken now. And uh, that work is being done by so many different entities. I mean, it could be dizzying for someone who's never engaged with the subject before. I mean, you, but I, I know that there, it's being collated for people and um, those resources, I think, are a, an assembly of what, oh, I wouldn't say just what people know about systemic racism or things of that nature, but what they know about the efforts to move beyond it. And so when conversations about kind of, what is this defund the police you know, movement? What does that even mean? And urban historians were like, well, glad you asked, you know? You know and there, people broke out their Camden case studies. You know, there are, um, there's a rich body of work on you know, roads already taken. And what we know about those particular strategies, how they can, how they can flourish, how they can die, um, 
how they can be co-opted. Uh, there's an amazing piece um, of kind of public scholarship that uh, put out recently by Megan Ming, Ming Francis and Erica Cole. That, that it's on movement capture and philanthropy. And so this is looking at you know the, these mm -hmm. civil rights and kind of liberation movements that get funded. Um, necessarily so, the organizations getting philanthropic funding and how those relationships end up kind of moving the uh, the target line for kind of what is it that they aim, these organizations aim to do. I mean, we have a lot of, as historians, um, we have a lot of relevant knowledge and I'd say that there is a great deal of work being done by public scholarship platforms um, like Metropole for Urban History and, you know, HISTPhil for Philanthropy, History of Philanthropy. I mean, those types of platforms are really coalescing this um, information in a way that's readable and shareable. Um, I, I think the, the thing I do notice, though, is Historians, I mean, and this is something I myself have kind of fallen victim to, is um, being a planner who's also a historian and a preservationist who's also a historian, I often have to present myself as a planner to be in conversations about economic recovery um, where it's really my historical knowledge that's relevant to the, to the, the planning that's taking place. Um, and so I think for so long we have as a, an academy not trained historians to be um, their own the word isn't their own publicists like what is it that you do as a in terms of the, your research inquiries but also what is it that you know um, that's of relevance to these specific audiences and in what ways do you envision it being um, uptake, you know, what, how do you envision the uptake into their bloodstreams? Because unfortunately, you know, the economic development authorities across the country are not going to change the way that they do things to make how um, they design their business recovery programs um, more inclusive of historical knowledge. And so finding that route in is really the onus falls on, you know, the historian to craft um, ways for that to be communicated. And, you know, of yesteryear was an executive summary. And now it's like, do you have a blog post or some other type of media product that sums this up in a way that I can read it in three minutes, you know? Right, right. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID Calls, my discussion with Fallon Samuels Adu. I want to get um, one final question in just to bring it back to COVID-19, uh, Fallon, um, just as we're closing out here. So this is a unconventional disaster in lots of ways, one of which is the time scale that we're talking about here. It's hard to know specifically, but we're probably still in the United States in the earlier stages. Coming back, maybe some full circle to where we started here about economic um, survival and recovery. There's a lot of discussion of waves of the pandemic. Will there be 
economic waves as well in the local economy in, in New Orleans? I mean, as this stretches out into the fall and early into 2021, what kind of things, again, are you looking for that'll be telling you, okay, we're weathering this, we're, we're making it through this, or other kind of things you might be looking at and saying, okay, there's real distress here, deeper distress than even we thought. Well, I think that COVID has um, raised, has highlighted existing um, inefficiencies and most certainly unsustainable levels of structural racism and economic exclusion that prevent cities from diversifying their economies. And um, that has, you know, for New Orleans, it's a service-based economy and to a lesser extent than it once was, it's a trade-oriented economy. I mean, more so just because the, the building construction industry here is, is relatively strong. Um, and so the workforce, the trade workforce that goes along with that is a, is a pretty, is pretty robust here. Um, you know, you combine those two with oil and gas and that's it. And so when, um, when our mayor, uh, Cantrell announced the first, you know, stay at home order, she had to say two things. One, I need everybody to understand how much of the municipal budget the sales tax revenue is. I mean, astronomically, like, I wouldn't, I don't want to misquote her, so I won't give a number, but um, considerably more than I think anybody <laughs> anticipates. Uh, and mm. that sales revenue from uh, all of your, particularly from your your re the restaurant industry, not you know other goods, is um, is an indicator of the the state of the that that particular kind of service food service workforce, because so much of that population is also the city's black population. It is become like an indicator of whether you know, what's the state of that particular workforce is. Um, secondly, the, I mean, because the construction industry is far more diversified racially. Um, and so I, I think that that's one of the things that I'll be looking at um, is, you know, how is our sales tax revenue doing? That'll be like a measure of how that particular sector is doing and, um, and how much work those individuals are getting. But I would say the other dimension of this, um, because this is just kind of the way I, I like to look at these things, is when are the people going back to church? <laughs> so many of the churches of New Orleans um, are small, like in many urban areas, they're kind of storefront churches, but there's some really large churches, like the one I'm a member of, and we've have we have a robust AV tech system going. You know, it's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. You can watch it on every platform you could possibly think. And um, you know, they reopened the church two weeks ago, and you know, you can you can seat up to 250 in in the because of the the size of this this church. Um, 
And there's a lot of reticence, a lot of reticence. Mm. And, and so understandably, I myself have not. Um, and I think that, right. you know, some of this could be chalked up to people just getting comfortable now to watching it on a screen and like, maybe they will never come back to the, to the, um, the right. physical building. But I think more so it's, it can be a measure of, um, you know, that soft people's willingness to, to go out and, and, you mm-hmm. know, patron businesses, but really go out and be a part of public life. When does that happen? Right. And I, for me, my part of my metric would be when do the, the seats of the church fill up? Um, that's one way of looking at it. Okay. Craig Fugate has his Waffle House Index. Fallon <laughs> Samuels Adu has the sales tax and the church pew uh, <laughs> density index. Uh, I'll we'll work on that name. We can get better at the name, I think, but that, that's great. That's, and, of course, the kind of insight that you have to be doing the kind of close empirical work that you do, but also be a member of the community oh. to be doing it. Um, we're up on time. I want to remind people you've been listening to COVID Calls, a great week of discussions with disaster researchers connected with the Hazards Workshop, which concluded this week. And shout out to everybody who participated in that. This week, you can catch COVID Calls every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. We have great discussions coming up next week. So please join us on, on Monday. And Fallon, as always, great to see you. Thank you so much for making time to do this today. Thank you so much for inviting me to participate. I really enjoyed this. And it's, I'm, I can't see all the questions and responses from others, but I do look forward to uh, responding to anybody with questions. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday. <laughs>